Okay. <laughs> so uh, today we are joined by Columbia University trained trauma-informed psychologist, intergenerational trauma expert, practitioner of holistic healing, and author of the soon-to-be-released book, Breaking the Cycle, A Guidebook to Healing. We are privileged and blessed by the beautiful be gorgeous, ever so gorgeous, fabulous. You've got the most fabulous psychologist I've ever met, Dr. <laughs> Marielle Bouquet. Dr. Marielle, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited. How are you? Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I'm doing well, Ashley. It's really wonderful to reconnect with you and to be with you. And um, I'm, I'm delighted. And of course, you are, as always, just a beam of light and uh, just inside and out because you're always glowing and you look so wonderful. So it's, it's lovely to see you, but it's lovely to also be in conversation with you. I'm so excited. So a little backstory about me and Dr. Marielle. We met because you were a guest on The Real when I was a producer there and you came on for a segment. I forget. It was fact or fiction and you like yeah. down like about mental health and some facts and some some truths and some untruths about mental health. You were amazing. And so that's how we connected. I had already been following you. And so when my EP came to me and was like, who can we get to come on and talk about it? I was like, uh, no brainer, Dr. Marielle, I shot you a DM and bam, that was it. So <laughs> thank you for doing that then. Thank you for being here today. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm so excited to have you. Um, and before we dive in, how are you? How is your day going today? Like I said, you always look so fabulous, but how are you? Thank you. I really appreciate you asking that. That's um, a little bit more on the unconventional side for people to usually ask how a therapist or a psychologist is doing, first of all, but um, I'm doing really well. I feel fairly grounded and I'm also really busy, like doing a lot of things that are a little out of the realm of my um, like place of knowledge, like meaning that there's just a lot of new things happening in my world, especially with like launching my first book. So that's so new that every day I'm presented with such new things that I have to kind of wrap my head around. So this is my learning season as I call it. And so I'm, I'm taking it all in, but it, it's been feeling pretty good. But how are you? Oh gosh, I feel like I'm in a season of learning too. I turned 40 soon, August mm -hmm. 17th is my birthday. So I turned- Happy early 40. birthday. Thank you. And I'm just in a season of, what what's my next act gonna be? You know, like what's next for me? You know, like that's the season that I'm in. So thank mm -hmm. you for asking me that also, cause nobody don't be asking how I'm doing either. They be just mm -hmm. like, let's get into it. But, that's the season that I'm in, doctor. So if you have any advice for me, online or offline, shoot me some advice on, you know, the season of waiting and not even just being still and waiting, but waiting while being pro proactive. You know what I mean? Like that's mm -hmm. the season that I'm in. And so, and then mm -hmm. being in the entertainment industry right now is very uncertain. I will, I will say it's just very like, it's a... It's an uncertainty in the air right now. So I'm mm -hmm. just, you know, in that place of what's next? What mm -hmm. what does God have for me? Like what what are you what's my next act? That's what I'm the season that I'm in. So mm -hmm. yeah. No, I can appreciate that openness that you carry around this season, because when there's uncertainty, a lot of us lean into fear and what we're thinking is, oh my God, rather than 
what is out there for me, which is a, a an approach that I think will allow you to feel greater ease in the journey. So glad that you're approaching it that way. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Okay, doctor, I'll hit you up on some other stuff. <laughs> Let's dive right in. Again, I'm so excited to be reconnected with you here because I always am in your DMs or in your comments on Instagram because you always drop so many gems. And I think it resonates with so many people because it always hits on something that somebody's dealing with. And so whatever you drop, whatever video you post, I feel like it always resonates with me. And I'm like, oh, I needed that today, you know, and you Mm. always drop them in the morning. And I'm like waking up and you're on the East Coast. I'm on the uh, West Coast. And so I always see them right in time. I'm like, here we go. Let's get this day started. (laughs) I'm like, before you do anything that's likely to get you in trouble, I got you. Listen, listen. But I'm so inspired by you and I want to know, and I want my viewers to learn about your journey too. How did you get how did you become Dr. Mario Bouquet? How did we get mm. here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that um, because my journey is, I think my journey is, as I see it now, very much a journey that so many of us have taken in, in our lives in some way or another. And for me, it has been a journey that has had a lot of unconventionality around it. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't just like, you know, wake up one day in my teen years and say like I want to be a doctor I want to be a psychologist Mm -hmm. I actually I used to work in media I used to work on the advertising side Mm -hmm. and that the media world was my actual dream Mm -hmm. I wanted to in in part I wanted to be a reporter like I wanted to get into that area of work and it as you are saying now you know it's it's there's a lot of uncertainty now but there was uncertainty then too and it was like really hard to tap into and i also didn't feel very prepared or fulfilled in the process and then the journey towards trying to aspire for this role as a reporter and what i did is that because i felt such a high level of unfulfillment in that moment in my life i just went and started volunteering and I volunteered in my hometown of Newark, New Jersey, and I started volunteering there sometimes even as many hours as I actually worked in my full-time job. Yeah, yeah like it, it started becoming so fulfilling that I was depositing almost every ounce of energy that I had, and it started looking a lot more like mental health volunteer work. Mm. And so I started thinking, oh my goodness, like I can actually do this like as a profession. Interestingly enough, simultaneously, I actually had to undergo surgery around that time in my life. I'm talking, I'm 23. And a colleague of mine, while I I was working at the Weather Channel at that time, and a colleague of mine was like, you look pretty stressed about this. Why don't you see a therapist? I see a therapist. And I was like, a therapist? Come on now. Like, what is this? Right. Right. Like nobody in my world talked about therapy, mental health, any of it. And in my first session with this therapist, he leans over at the end of it and tells me, you're very psychologically minded. You should consider being a therapist. Oh, wow. And for the entirety of our treatment, it was literally him trying to convince me to be a therapist. He would tell me what kind of money I could make, what kind of trajectory I would need to take in order to actually get the degree. Like he, it was literally coaching at that point, right. which was really interesting that he took on that 
he just felt so passionate about driving me in that direction. And I'm really grateful for that because he was able to see something I wasn't. And eventually the, the culmination of the volunteer work and this person just pushing me and pushing me in that direction, you know, I, I took a leap of faith and I said, I think this is what I have to do. And um, it was profoundly scary. I've never in my life like known what a panic attack is until I actually, like the first day when I was unemployed and about to become a student. Mm. And it was so scary. And they say that, you know, sometimes you have to do things scared. And sometimes that that fear that you experience is letting you know that you're leveling up or reaching a higher high mm. thing, what you may have been accustomed to. And I really do believe in retrospect, that's what was happening. And I never look back. I'm really glad that I did it because it, I really feel like I'm living in my purpose. Oh my gosh, listen, that's so inspiring. And again, <laughs> touching on so many points, was that journey to go to therapy? You said you had not been immersed with that world. Nobody in your family talked about that, but had that process been therapeutic for you and healing for you when you set out on this journey to heal others? Did you find your own personal healing throughout this? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, Everything that I would actually get into as far as like understanding how healing works and how the mind works and the inner workings of our subconscious mind and all of these things, I actually brought it back home. And so I've been doing intergenerational work and intergenerational healing with my family for well over a decade because I kept thinking if I'm going to heal and I'm going to experience what I now call like the generational privilege that we have in this world, which is that we have access to so much information around healing. If I can get that by way of being in these spaces where we're talking about healing 24 seven, why would I not bring that to the people that I love? Why would not, would I not internalize that for myself and be a very authentic healer? Because I wholeheartedly believe that if I'm going to sit in front of somebody and I'm going to say, you need to do this and you need to carve out the layers of the pain that you are experiencing and you need to go into your family history mm-hmm. and you need to really sit with yourself and sit in the aloneness that it that feels like healing. Mm-hmm. I have to do that for myself, too. Right. I and, and, and I also believe that one of the, the roles that I hold the most confidence in is the role of clinician. Like when I'm in front of someone, I'm present, I'm mindful. I I feel like I hold a lot of knowledge and that is one area of my life where I have you know, enough humility but also confidence because I've done so much of the inner work but also like I've been I've held so much of this experience of feeling a duty to serve my communities well that what that translated into was me like being profoundly well-trained, well-read, well-everything so that I can show up as my best self for the people that I want to experience this kind of healing. So it's always been personal and professional. It's never it's never been either or. Wow, Ooh, that's so deep. Mm-hmm. Listen, let's talk about the book, which you have in the background mm-hmm. and it's Break the Cycle, Guidebook to Healing. This comes out in 2020, January. January, yes. Yes. I'm so excited about this book. Um, Just because I feel like us as a culture, I see so many memes on social media about people's upbringing Mm -hmm. and 
it like reminds me of my childhood. I'm like, did we live on the same street? But we don't know each other. But I feel like we all like grew up the same, right? Whether it be right or wrong, I feel like we all had can pull or share some experiences that are the same. I want to talk a little bit about the book. Um, and then I also want to talk if you can explain to people what intergenerational trauma even is, because mm -hmm. I feel like with the uh, servants of social media and these terms and these words, people are like, what is a gaslight? What is narcissist? What is intergenerational trauma? Can the doctor break it down for us today, <laughs> the viewers? What does intergenerational trauma mean for those that don't know? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's power in being able to like collectively define something and like really for all of us to be on the same page about a term, mm -hmm. especially a term that can be, you know, used for healing. So intergenerational trauma is the only type of trauma that's handed down generations of our family line. Mm -hmm. And it happens at two modes of transmission. So it happens down our genetic line, which means that there's a biological component to intergenerational trauma. If we had parents that they themselves were in chronic stress or chronic trauma as a result of things that happened in their lives, whether it was, you know, something that happened because they had a, an accident, right? And they were traumatized by that accident or because they lived in a marginalized identity and they had chronic oppression mm -hmm. that then, you know, created a lot of stress in their minds and bodies and spirits, mm -hmm. then they would have actually lived in a body that eventually would have registered that there's stress and trauma and that it is longstanding. And, mm -hmm that has the capacity to actually alter our genetic code. And when we are conceived, we when we conceive a baby, those genetic encodings get translated forward uh, to the baby, which is where we say like, you know, the initial underpinnings of intergenerational trauma begin because we start with some of the biology. Mm -hmm. But once that baby is, you know, out into the world, the baby could be a baby that's nurtured by, a mother that is still in her traumatized state. And that could lead to misattunement, that could lead to um, maybe even as far as abuse, right? And that baby could experience bullying once they enter the school system. They themselves could, you know, fall under systems that oppress them. They themselves can have relationships that traumatize them. And so when they start developing trauma symptoms, then we can say, okay, a biological predisposition to stress and trauma had been there because they had this emotional vulnerability that's the biology and now psychologically there was misattunement when they were growing up there were attachment disruptions there was you know a, a parent that um, couldn't care for them properly there were other experiences that hurt them and they now are the new legacy bearer of trauma which is where intergenerational trauma comes in Ooh, that's a lot <laughs> i know I, I mean, that's a lot. And like, we're dealing with it now. Like, I know I am in my family. There's inter that, listen, there's no fault to anybody. There's no blame, mm -hmm. but it's there because like you said, it's been passed down. It's been inherited, right? What inspired you to want to write this book? And what do you hope that people will learn and take away from it? Mm. You know, it's a little bit twofold again, right? So it definitely started off with me being in these, I used to work at Columbia University Medical Center and we have in, in every psychiatry clinic, 
there's like team meetings mm -hmm. and in the team meetings usually we discuss some of our cases meaning the 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 patients that we serve that have enough of a complicated history that we feel like I need to consult with my team members and fellow clinicians let me let me ask them what they think about the history that this person is presenting with and story after story it was always like well you know they're in they're surviving from a domestic violence and their mother also survived from a, you know, a relationship where domestic violence was prominent. And so did their grandmother. And so I'm in essence looking around and I'm like, there's a through line in so many of these stories that we're presenting in this clinical meeting room. Mm -hmm. And for years, no one was calling it. Right. right. No one was naming what was happening. In part, it wasn't even so much the clinician's fault, but in part because intergenerational trauma just happens to be such a new aspect of our clinical work that nobody had been really trained around it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for us, and more unfortunately for the people that we serve, these experiences weren't being called out and they weren't being treated from the perspective of, from a trauma lens. Right. And so as a result, I felt a lot of, if you may, like maybe frustration mm -hmm. with the fact that, especially because I was working as a clinician in Washington Heights in Manhattan. And so it's 95% Black and Latinx patients. Mm -hmm. So as you might have already like, you know, it's like thought or, or suspected, like there's an over-identification that a person like me has with a community because that is my community. And so I feel a, a sense of duty to be able to make sure that what we're doing is well-informed. Right. So I was like, we have to figure this out. So there, it, come, it came from a little bit of that frustration, but also because I, I, since I was doing a lot of the healing work with my family at home, I kept thinking, and my sister and I were like co-cycle breakers as we call each other, but we kept like having conversations like about the things that my mom had to go through mm -hmm. and my dad and my grandmother who lived in dire, dire poverty and the ways that that left an impression on them. And mm -hmm. the fact that they had these people-pleasing qualities or these uh, ways in which they would respond to stress that were directly connected to their upbringing and how they were in chronic suffering and had been for decades and how we had assumed some of those qualities ourselves. And so I was like, oh my goodness, like it's here too. So I've got to do something about this. So wow. it came from a, a deep duty that felt personal and professional yet again. Oof. Thank you for naming the name. Thank you for putting a name to this, because like you said, it's been around. We've been, you know, in that world, but we didn't know what to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, generational curse. I've heard of those terms before. Is that sort of the same as the intergenerational trauma or should we not identify our trauma as a curse? What do you think about that term, generational curses? Well, the thing about the term curse is that the term curse actually allows us an opportunity to see that we were trying to create or assign language to what we already knew was there. And we have had non-Westernized ways of working through these wounds that we've carried for so many generations, 
for a very long period of time and they've been called a generational curse and people have done you know healing circles and drum circles to try and like extract the pain from their community members and there's been like all of these ways in which we have already held a lot of ancient and indigenous and afro-indigenous knowledge around what's happening in our families but we never in the westernized world until about a few decades ago until we really started seeing from a more uh, let's call it biological natural science perspective that there were common threads and trauma until we started seeing that a lot of the psychological world wasn't really buying into the fact that there were these wounds that carried through generations and through a family line so now that we have you know western science mm -hmm. collaborating with in essence right like ancient right. wisdom mm -hmm. now i think people are more so willing to have the conversation about what is happening and assigned to it generational trauma, maybe still utilize generational curse here and there. And I don't think there's, you know, any fault in the language. I think the language was there to help us and orient us when we didn't have anything to really fall on. Mm, that's listen. Okay, doctor, that was uh, that was a word. Um, you <laughs> about it, and I think a lot of people feel like we know what intergenerational trauma is. But what are some examples? of intergenerational trauma and how can we identify it if it shows up, if we're not aware, how can we identify that? that? So there are a lot of symptoms. I mean, I think that there's as many symptoms as there are people, right? So there's there's a lot to unpack in, in terms of the symptoms themselves. And, and I've done my best in the book to really try to emphasize as many as I can so we can have at least some points of reference. But even in the book, I say, are there any that aren't reflected here that you've seen in your own family that you believe should make the list? And maybe you can add them yourself. But I say that just as a preface, but I'd like to emphasize that there are some biological ways that we can look at this and then psychological or social ways that we can look at it. From the biological end, we have to think about where trauma is primarily uh, placed, which is mm -hmm. our nervous system. Whenever mm -hmm. we are in a state of trauma, our nervous system is in essence in overdrive. Mm -hmm. And very often what that does is that it minimizes our capacity to tolerate stress. Mm -hmm. So we could like lose our favorite pencil and we lose our heads, right? right? Because right. like the ways that we've already been programmed to be very emotionally vulnerable to any mild stressor makes it so that we have that experience. Our nervous system is always on a hundred. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that um, in essence, like because we have that vulnerability navigating through the family line, there may be multiple family members that have that overactive nervous system state. And it mm -hmm. could look different for different people. Some people might be yellers and every time that they get stressed, they just lash out. They got angry outbursts going, you know, and it's like that whole you know, experience that you get from them. Right. There's other people that may be the withdrawers, right? And they just, they avoid conflict. They want nothing to do with anything. If they sense conflict, they're like, they're shutting down. They're just like not engaging. Right. And there's different variations of that. And sometimes in a family line, like for example, if you have a mom that was a yeller, mm -hmm. her child may have in essence learned the response of staying shut so that they wouldn't experience the violence. And so you have, even though both nervous systems are in overdrive, it's a different response. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So I think that that's really an, an important kind of biological element to understand around intergenerational trauma. But then we also have some of the psychology, right? Like some people learn to be people pleasers. 
in order to receive love because that's what they saw being modeled in their homes. Mm. Some people learned that they need to self-suppress and shrink because they saw a parent shrinking because they they had a low sense of self-worth. And so it's a lot of those like social psychological elements of intergenerational trauma responses that we also see down our family line. And we have to understand that when we're kids, we're ingesting all of that. We're mimicking the adults around us, we're sponges. And so kids are taking in those stress responses, but they're also taking in a lot of those like social psychological ways of being and operating in the world that are reflected in their family line. Ooh. And how important is it to recognize and address it so that because, yeah, when we're kids, we can't control the environment that we're you know mm -hmm. in. But when we become adults and now we're carrying the trauma over into our relationships or into our work or into just our lives, how important is it for us to address it, recognize it, and then seek therapy to get help for it? Because isn't that right? We can't just like lay in or rest in, well, that's how I grew up. That's how my mama was. That's how my daddy was. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And Part of what you're talking about is something that I also reference in my work, which is the normalization of trauma responses, which is when we say, well, that's just how I am, or that's, it is what it is, or that's how I am, or that's the culture. Mm -hmm. Whenever we start that normalization practice or process that then spans generations, mm -hmm. it makes trauma responses almost invisible. People don't, people don't call them out anymore because they just think it's the norm. Mm -hmm. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And what winds up happening is that we become cycle keepers rather than cycle breakers. We become the-, the, the a, Say that again, doctor. We become <laughs> cycle keepers instead, instead of cycle breakers. breakers. My, my. Give <laughs> <laughs> jar for the church today. Okay, finish doctor. That was good. That was good. <laughs> I appreciate you. But it's the, it's the truth, you know, it's- it's an unfortunate truth and it's one that some people even carry in an unconscious way. They don't know sometimes that a trauma response is a trauma response. And as a result, they simply act in accordance to what they think is normal mm -hmm. and they risk transporting those trauma responses onto the next generation. And because they believe it's normal as well, on and on we go till one person decides, you know what, things can be different. Right. Things should be different. I don't want to see this pain in my family anymore. I don't want to see my communities in pain anymore. Something like, you know, it, I think it's a, a lot less normalized and maybe more culturally sanctioned now uh, in the world, really. But before maybe our generation, the hitting children in order to address their behavior was really widely accepted and prominent. Oh, absolutely. And so that's that's a, a, a version of how we can normalize behavior, like a parent, in essence, feeling so overburdened by their child's behavior and stressed that the, the one way in which they have decided that they're going to restructure their behavior is by hitting them, not realizing how the implications on that little child's nervous system and the ways that they're going to respond to being aggressed upon and how they may then take that on as like normal behavior that they are are you know 
normal that they, they're going to perceive that if anybody is to injure them in any way physically or emotionally that that's a normal way in which they should receive love mm. and so the fact that we're you know we've been normalizing that for generations and haven't really fully addressed it really kind of until this generation more so leaves us to understand that whenever we have these unaddressed behaviors or unaddressed ideas in our communities that we can cause a lot of harm that is generational. Think about like our parents, right? There is a very high chance. I mean, I, I don't have numbers, but I think that a very large percentage of them were hit, right. right? And a very large percentage of them suffered that nervous system overdrive whenever they knew that they were in trouble. Right. So we have right. an entire generation of our parents that had this deep, deep suffering at such critical points in their lives, like their childhood. Mm -hmm and they didn't have society stepping in on their behalf and saying no we don't hit children right people were like oh yeah oh if your mother didn't hit you i'm the neighbor and i'm gonna hit you right and it was so right. normalized right right and so when we start contesting these kinds of practices and behaviors and ideas then we can break cycles that can have ripple effects and not only impact the people in our families but impact the people in our communities and definitely. Um, you talk about it in your book, um, but what are some specific practices, right? Therapies. I know you talk about the holistic component mm -hmm. that we can do individually and that we can then, like you did, bring it back to your family and then back to the community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what we're knowing more and more around trauma work, and it's very important for intergenerational trauma work, is that it needs to be a multi-level multi approach. Mm -hmm. because intergenerational trauma it's it's been actually called like which I thought was really interesting a soul wound mm -hmm. and the way that I thought of I know right like it's deep and it is deep it's very deep yeah yeah it's deep stuff so the way that I've thought about it has been by especially and in, in, in it's what I've seen in my work it's that people's minds are impacted because their thoughts then start looking a certain way after they've, they've been in trauma, meaning that they uh, they have more worry thoughts, more thoughts that are like, you know, uh, more melancholic and, and sad, right? And they some of the thinking is, well, people can't be trusted, right? Or mm -hmm. um, I'm not lovable and things like that that are just the thoughts that then start culminating in their minds because they have been in a traumatized state. The same goes for their emotions, right? They, they experience deep shame and guilt and anxiety. And like a lot of these emotions are tied back to trauma roots. Mm -hmm. Then in the body, we have an entire nervous system that has been taking in from a very, very early point in our lives, literally at conception, mm -hmm. it has been taking in a lot of these stress vulnerabilities. And then whenever stress does happen in our lives, those stress, the stressors develop into um, a lot of psychological uneasiness, meaning that we just have like a lot of like, uh, in essence, like we're, we're feeling like very heavy, but mm -hmm. we're also like more susceptible to feeling or to having chronic illness. Mm -hmm. And then it's also, you know, in the spirit realm. So it's very mind, body, spirit. And in the spirit, I like to contextualize that as like us being disconnected from ourselves or from others or higher powers, right? Like it's us not feeling connected, not feeling rooted, not feeling grounded. That's what intergenerational trauma does. It's mind, body, spirit. It literally impacts all of those things. 
And because it is such a deep wound, the work needs to be deep. Right. Which means that it needs to get at how the body is metabolizing trauma and how it's taking that in. And we need to do body work in order to extract, you know, some of those tension pockets out of the body so that people can feel lighter in their own bodies and feel like their bodies are a safe haven for them. The same goes for the mind. We need to address like some of the emotions and some of the thoughts that have been cemented in, in their minds for such a long period of time. And we need to do the same thing, you know, with rooting them back to themselves and helping them to feel more at ease and more connected in their in their own lives and in relationship to others. Lord, doctor, you are, I told y'all this one right here. I need to get me a, I need to, I need you to be my therapist. Okay. Um, instead of just my Instagram therapist, um, Dr. Maria, what does healing look like after trauma though? Mm-hmm. Um, so you go, you know, you go to therapy, you have the tools and you're, you know, maybe saying, okay, I've been in therapy for five years. I feel like I'm healed now, but is it ever I'm healed or is the work ever evolving? Can you talk a little bit about life after you've done the work and you're healing? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So the goal is to feel like you can navigate the world without feeling like the world is on top of you right? Mm. Like it's a matter of feeling like the world and the people in your world and yourself, like everything feels more tolerable, more connected, more integrated. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is that us as humans, we're formulated to have stress in our lives. There's no way to extract that, but it's about how you're dealing with the stress, how you're internalizing the stress and how you're also like experiencing yourself, whether you're feeling like your your body is always on fire and not a safe place to live in or if you feel you feel like your body and mind and spirit are steady even with the things that may come up in your life so it's the latter right like we want we want people to feel lighter right and the work itself and i've i've written break the cycle to reflect the work so i made it a guide on purpose so that people could have tangible tools at their disposal that they could actually use on a day-to-day basis to actually engage in the work and really deepen their healing. And the work itself is very mind, body, spirit based. So there are a number of different practices that I engage in in the book that are nervous system restoration practices so that those intergenerational nervous system threads that we have been carrying and all that physical weight we've been carrying in our bodies based on what our ancestors went through and what our parents and grandparents went through and even what we experience in our own life that we can lessen that overactive response and increase our generational resilience and the resilience that's already inherent in us and the the strength that we already have in us, but we're not necessarily tapping into every day. So there's a lot of uh, practices that are meditative, some that are a little bit more movement oriented. There's a lot of orientation around how to set up the work so that the work can really feel like it's really deep work because it needs to be. And then I do a lot of excavating after that, but I first ground people like Mm -hmm. one of the things that us therapists that we have aired in doing for a a very long time is asking people to peel the layers of the onion and then Mm -hmm. we're asking them to do that without first giving them the tools on how to feel safe in their bodies. So that's going to be the most essential component is how we train the the body to feel like a safe place, like you can 
bring yourself back and give yourself an opportunity to feel ease, even while you're doing deep work. The excavating is very lengthy. It's and and I offer different uh, practices and different orientations in the book, but in part, some of what we do is I offer, like I do in my therapy sessions, an intergenerational trauma healing assessment, mm -hmm. which is we literally get into the layers. Like we spend a lot of time on that, and there mm -hmm. are a lot of questions that I offer so that people can really dig in. Right. There's also an intergenerational trauma tree that is reflected in the book that is reflected of the ways in which I take people through their entire history line, whatever it is that they have a historic account for or they can, you know, they can remember and map that into an intergenerational trauma tree so that they can have a visual aid to see where the pain has been reflected in their family line. Wow. And in addition to that, I also integrate a lot of the what we now know to be adverse childhood experiences or ACEs into the understanding of what we're working with here. So that's a lot of the excavation work, right? And in that, we're also doing some of the mind work. Mm -hmm. So we're attending to the ways in which people have internalized messages like I'm not good enough or we don't talk about therapy outside of the well to, to people outside of the family. So we don't go to therapy. That's not our thing, you know. Um, even things that are more related to like systemic inequities that we have internalized, like, you know, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and crap like that, that has been now in this generation, I think more contested, but there are a lot of people that still in a subconscious way still abide by those like ideologies and rules mm -hmm. and, and, you know, community ideas that we haven't really dismantled enough. Yeah. So there's all of that. And that's, it's a very big data collection process and one that can get heavy uh, people sometimes have very long bouts of crying and really just taking in all of the information mm -hmm. but i do a lot of gentle pauses for readers to take them through this journey because i understand that my ethic as a clinician is to ensure that the work is tolerable not mm -hmm. that it pushes a person beyond their limits and now they're you know in a state of unrest that they can't get themselves out of that's not healthy the healthier version of that is to give them just a little bit to digest then get into some nervous system restoration so they can find themselves back to a safe place and then we do a little bit more of the digging work and around and around we go until we we hit a place where we're feeling more rooted more insightful more grounded more elevated more disruptive of our own trauma patterns and more stepping into an intergenerational legacy rather than keeping those legacy burdens alive. Ooh. How do you, because in the intergenerational trauma, it's the generation, right? It's the family, it's the lineage. How do you create after you are, you've decided to do the work? So I'll take myself, for example, I've decided to do the work. I'm seeing a therapist. I'm on my healing journey, but my family or the person who may trigger me or what have you may not be. How do you set healthy boundaries and put those in place so that you aren't triggered when you're in spaces with family members that may tend to trigger you? In part, it's about allowing family members to know that you're no longer willing to respond in the same ways that you have in the past. Because we have to think about what, uh, an unhealthy family pattern is or family dysfunction is. It's a, a conversation 
It's mm -hmm. communication that happens between two or more people. Right. Even if it's like that one person like stonewalls and stays quiet and ignores you or ghosts you, like that's still communication. They're mm -hmm. still relaying a message. Right. So when we are no longer allowing our part of that contribution, this is where the cycle keeping comes in. When mm -hmm. we're no longer allowing that, that already sends a message. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit more gentle than your traditional boundaries work where you're like, I'm not accepting that or that, you know, and it's, yes. it's, it's more of you're showing up in a more healed version of yourself, one that is no longer contributing to the dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so because you're already cutting the cord on the dynamic itself, it's no longer bringing, you know, you're going to have like interactions and people are going to have strong responses also to you creating boundaries, even if they're the more subtle implicit boundaries like the one I'm mentioning. But that's when it's really important in the work to also regulate your own response, your own nervous system so that you can have a more steady way of sitting with the discomfort of them let's call it having a bit of an adult tantrum around okay. your boundary setting, right? Mm -hmm. And for some of us, we can, because intergenerational trauma work allows you to see the layers of pain that also existed for some of our family members, for some of us, uh, a healthy dose of compassion will actually be very helpful. Mm. When, when we can look at our family members, like let's say it's a parent mm -hmm. and that parent is mad triggering. But the thing about your new insight or elevated understanding of intergenerational trauma is that it allows you to see the inner child that's wounded in them that's creating this family dysfunction. And that is going to also be helpful in keeping you steady in the moments when you feel like, oh boy, here it comes again. I can feel it. I know it. I sense it. It's coming. All the things that they yeah. start doing, like they're coming up but you're responding differently because you're you're so steady and centered and have greater insight as to what exactly is happening inside of them and inside of yourself and it's allowing you to feel a lot lighter than you would have otherwise. Doctor, I love that perspective so much because you hear so much or you see so much on social media where you know, I am no longer subscribing to that and I am turning my phone off. I am not going to the family function. I am not and it's like you can't just isolate yourself. And it almost feels like a little bit of not healed, right? When you're mm -hmm. like, so, you know what I mean? I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. But yeah. I love your perspective of being gentle. And in your healing, you're in turn seeing where their trauma is coming from. So I really, mm -hmm. really love that. I got a little yeah. emotional over here, mm -hmm. like listening mm -hmm. to you. Um, lastly, Dr. How can people, aside from your book, because everybody go get the book, when does it come out? It comes out in January, 2024. Is there a date? Is there a launch yeah. date? Okay. Mm -hmm. January 2nd. It's the official date. In the new year. Listen, everybody go and get the book January 2nd or pre-order now. You can pre-order yeah. now. But aside from your book, how can people identify and find themselves a Dr. Mario Okay. Like how mm -hmm. can people find a therapist that um, can target specific needs and you know, traumas and issues that they're dealing with? What are some, what's some advice that you would give to people looking for a therapist? That they start specifically with that, with trauma-centered, trauma-responsive, trauma-trained. There are a diff different 
types of trauma modalities that can be very helpful when it comes to processing our traumas. But the people that are trauma responsive and already have the backing and the training, they have an understanding of how to hold space for trauma in mm-hmm. a way that um, someone who doesn't have that training may, may not know what to do or what's happening on a multi-level mind, body, spirit way. Um, and so it, that, unfortunately, what that means is that the pool gets a little bit smaller, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's worth at least like doing some work with someone that one can do in the meantime while while you wait for a connection with someone that has that trauma training. One thing that people can do when they actually engage with a clinician that is trauma trained is also to ask them, what do you, how do you work with trauma? What is it that you do? What's your training? Is it EMDR? Is it, you know, like, uh, is it more holistic? Like what's your approach? And that can be very helpful. And, and also for someone who is about to enter a very vulnerable relationship, it can be very empowering to step into it mm-hmm. with the questions that are going to be helpful for you in the long term. Mm. Dr. Mario Bouquet, that was so good. I love that. Thank you. Like, you, again, you dropped so many gems.